tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. That's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Welcome, welcome on this, well, at least we're on this sunny Monday. It's cold, but very sunny, so that's cheery. So so that's that's good. Sun is good. Well, shall we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught by the hearts. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in His comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, all right. Let us go to the big book on the coffee table. Well, let's start out with Hebrews, the 11th chapter. Um, again, the... the um, um, I find the letter to the Hebrews very complex and very difficult, but that doesn't stop me from commenting on it. What more shall I say? I have not time to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, did what was righteous and obtained promises. They closed the, mouth, they closed the mouths of lions, put out raging fires, escaped the devouring sword, out of weakness, they were made powerful and became strong in battle. All right. Gideon. We all know about Gideon. I love the story of Gideon uh, in the book of Judges. Gideon was uh, just a, he was a coward. He was a shameless coward. Uh, he, he, the story of Gideon is, is really worth reading. Uh, if you have never read the story of Gideon in the Bible, he is, it starts out with Gideon in a wine press trying to thresh out grain. The Amalekites uh, <clears throat> were ravaging the country. And if Gideon had gone to a regular place, like a, a plateau, a, a threshing floor, something like that, to, to thresh out grain, well, the Midianites would have swooped down on him, killed him, taken, cake, taken the grain. Uh, but uh, he's in this wine press, which would have been kind of like a small swimming pool. Uh, it was a, a stone vat that was huge, and, and uh, he's down there trying to thresh out grain. And an angel appears, and normally in visions of angels, you don't know it's an angel until things get going. Well, he, normally when you see angels, 
Actually, that's true. The, the letter of the Hebrews says, uh, unawares you have entertained angels, that sort of thing. So angels appear in lots of different forms. But as things go on, you begin to realize you're talking to an angel. Well, this fellow comes up to him and says, Hail, mighty man of God. And Gideon kind of looks around. And Gideon is the, he's as close as the ancient world can come to an atheist. He says, yeah, God's, uh, God's delivering the people. What's he done for us lately? So that's Gideon. And well, Gideon realizes it's an angel and then he goes into battle. And I love the story, um, that uh, he calls Israel to himself. And he says to this vast assembled multitude who come to fight, anyone's afraid, go home. Most people left. And then the Lord says, you still have too many and take them down to the river and have them drink. And there's some normally when you're when you're at least me, I would I would stoop down on uh, one knee and take up the water with my hand. Well, there there were some people, most people did it that way, but about 300 of them sort of got down on all fours and lapped up the water like a dog. And the Lord said, send the normal ones home, just keep the weirdos. And so with these 300 people, he he defeated the Midianites. Uh, that's trust. I mean, he trusted God despite himself. <clears throat> then you have Barak, who, who was involved with the... Uh, 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 the, the prophecies of, of uh, uh, um, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I think I'm getting my barracks confused, but Samson, he, despite his weakness, he was a man of faith. Jephthah, very interesting. He is the one who sacrificed his own daughter. And I don't think the scriptures are recommending that. It's just that he was a great conqueror and trusted God. So David, Samuel, they all, they, they trusted God and, and conquered kingdoms. Um, I think that, 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 well, that's the list of, of these heroes. And it's a wonderful thing to think that, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, uh, it's wonderful thing. Oh, this, the Barak here is not the Barak of, of the Exodus. It's the Barak who, uh, defeated, uh, Sisera in the book of 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 Judges, uh, Sisera was was a, uh, an enemy of uh, of Israel, a general, and well, Barak beat him. So these heroes, you know, the letter of the Hebrews is is very interested in these heroes who lived by by faith, who lived by trust. They trusted God. Uh, so. Uh, but they didn't, all of these had been approved because of their trust, but they did not receive what had been promised. God had foreseen something better for us so that without us, they should not be made perfect. Again, the word perfect in Greek really means to arrive at the goal. Uh, so uh, this idea of living by trust, this is a huge thing in the letter to the Hebrews, to live by trust. Uh, this is, this is, kind of a refutation of living by the law. So what you have in the letter of the Hebrews is that uh, the law was kind of a promise. The, the law was kind of a down payment on what would come to us in Christ, and that Christ is more than we expected. You know, it doesn't say in the law that he's priest king, that he's uh, human and divine, uh, dead and risen, a sacrificial offering. 
No, it's more. And that's the point of this, that that these people, they trusted God by obeying the law, but there's so much more than the law, and there's so much more in Christ. So I think that's that's a big part of what's what's going on here. But, well, let's go to the gospel, because the gospel, <laughs> this gospel upsets people. The the Gerizines, where were the Gerizines? Uh, Jesus is coming to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. This is Mark, the fifth chapter, the first verse and following. And Jesus is coming to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And there was an area called the Decapolis, which means the Ten Cities. And this Decapolis was Greek. In the middle of the Holy Land, there was an entire Greek colony of ten small cities. And I think it's very important for us when we when we look at Christ and, and the the spread of the gospel <clears throat> that we understand this. The Holy Land wasn't what you think of when you see all the Bible pageants, you know, all the people wandering around wearing towels on their heads and and, and loose fitting tunics. These people were pretty Greek. Greek civilization was not unlike American civilization. It's it's both loved and hated. Um, it's, it's very, our, our culture is a very seductive one. You know, it's kind of funny. You see people demonstrating against America and they all have, uh, Chicago Bulls t-shirts and, and, you know, uh, baseball caps on, um, that's not universal, but, but you see that. And we have a culture that is, is very, um, well, worldwide. And that was the way the Greeks were. Uh, you had the Hellenes, who were actual Greek. Hellas was the name for Greeks, and Hellenes were Greeks. But then you had the Hellenisti, which were the the Greek wannabes, the 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 people who spoke Greek as a first language, and the people who who um, uh, aped Greek fashions and and uh, and and Greek morals. So there were these ten cities. There were a colony of. Of, of Greek speakers in the middle of the Holy Land. And that's where Jesus was. He was among these Greeks. So, and I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Jesus spoke Greek. Um, the way that people now, you know, speak English. You go to, you go to places like Holland and Germany, and they speak English better than I do. So, uh, uh, in Scandinavia, everybody speaks English splendidly. Well. I wouldn't be at all surprised if Jesus spoke some Greek. Um, of course, we don't know that. Uh, very interesting that it's, it seems that much of what Jesus said was actually possibly, I would say even probably, written down while Jesus was still alive in his ministry, in his, in his uh, ministry in Galilee and in Judea, because that, they did that. They wrote things down in, uh, they wrote the sayings of rabbis down. So this idea that, well, how did they remember all of these sayings of Jesus? They wrote them down. People wrote these things down. And I wouldn't be surprised if they wrote them in Greek because they would wanted to share these ideas with with Greek-speaking Jews and with the residents of, of, of Greek cities. Jesus went into Greek-speaking territory. We never think of that. Well, <clears throat> he's in the Greek-speaking territory, and... Here's a story, a man who's uh, chained, uh, he would break his chains. And, uh, you know, the exorcists I've known have reports of uh, phenomenal strength of people who are possessed. 
I remember hearing the story of a, of an exorcist who got a couch thrown at him by a by a, a, a scrawny, starving person uh, who was possessed. Um, so there 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 are feats of great strength that that um, uh, people are possessed can do. So this this guy's pulling apart the chains, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. He's night and day among the tombs and on the hillside, uh, crying out and bruising himself with stones. So he he uh, uh, ran up to Jesus uh, and bowed before him, crying in a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God not to torment. Isn't this interesting? The devil is invoking God. You know, well... Can the devil do that? Apparently, the devil can. Any charlatan can invoke God, and I've <laughs> I've known a few. And uh, sometimes I have invoked God in a time when I shouldn't have. So um, you know that we we call on God <laughs> sometimes. Well, when we should be uh, obeying God. But moving along here, um, this to me is fascinating, and I, I've shared this before that the devil is a splendid theologian. He has no problem recognizing the divinity of Christ. But I do not believe that at any point in the New Testament does the devil ever call Jesus the Son of Man. Jesus' favorite title for himself was the Son of Man. The Son of Man was, uh, we read in the book of Daniel, was a celestial being who came from from heaven uh, to, um, uh, to earth. And, and this is the, the problem that the devil has no problem with God if, he, if he'll just mind his own business and stay in heaven. It's when God comes to earth in the person of the Messiah that, that the devil's in trouble. So he's very comfortable in recognizing the divinity of Christ. He's not comfortable in recognizing the humanity of Christ. The idea that Jesus, the Messiah, is fully human and fully divine is anathema to the devil. Uh, um, the devil, I think, uh, tempted Jesus in the desert uh, in an attempt to see who he was. Uh, if you are the son of God, then that sort of thing. Um, the devil is not comfortable with the incarnation, and neither are people who belong to the devil. They want either Jesus just to be divine or just to be human, just so that he minds his own business and doesn't have any any uh, authority over us. So uh, um, he asked him, what is, what is your name? Legion is my name. There are many of us. I, I forget how many were in a legion. Was it a thousand? It was, it was many thousands. I should have looked that up. But a legion was a huge, um, a huge gathering of soldiers and uh, also the support, uh, the support, you know, the support men. Uh, let's see. A legion here uh, was about four thousand two hundred people, maybe four thousand five hundred if you included, if you included uh, cavalry. So it was a huge, a huge uh, aggregation of, of of people. So legion is my name. There are many of us, and he pleaded earnestly with him not to drive them away from that territory. Why was the devil so interested in that territory? Because it belonged to him. The early Christians believed, and I think they were right, that the gods were real. The, the pagan gods were real, but they were demons, that they worshipped demons. And, and you'll read all sorts of 
polytheists to this day who are worshiping demons, all these new age people who who um, have all sorts of extra gods or extra spirits or extra powers. They're worshiping demons. So that was a territory, the Decapolis, that belonged to the demons. Now, a large herd of swine was feeding there. Send us into the swine, let us enter them. Uh, so the unclean spirits enter the swine. The herd of 2,000, well, that's that's ridiculous. I heard that big. It's not ridiculous. <clears throat> In all those Greek cities, there were temples. And pork was, a, apparently the Greek gods really liked pork. Uh, so there was, there was a lot of, a lot of sacrificing and, that would have been, you know, uh, an ox, that's a bit much. That's expensive. But a pig, yeah, we can afford to sacrifice a pig to Zeus, no problem. So these, this huge herd of swine, I have heard, and it may, it's reasonable to me, was probably uh, a herd dedicated to the, the sacrifice trade, that these pigs were owned by the temples, and then they would be bought by a... a a uh, person who wanted to offer sacrifice to one of the gods. And so, you know, there was a, a nice arrangement and a profitable business. So these pigs already belonged to the devil. He let them, the unclean spirits came out, entered the swine. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down a steep bank into the sea where they were drowned. The swine herds would just have been slaves. They, these pigs, if, the, if this theory is true, these pigs would not have belonged to the swine herds. They would have lost nothing. Uh, but, you know, I think all oh, the poor swineherds lost their living, the, the, the poor pigs. And these pigs belonged to the devil, and they were going to be sacrificed uh, on the altars anyway. So they were, they were pigs already under a death sentence, and uh, they didn't belong to the swineherds, if, if that theory is true. Well, they wanted him out of the territory because that was frightening. And I think that this is a very interesting uh, uh, idea, that, that they were frightened of the power of God because they thought that the gods were these supernatural beings whom they could manipulate with sacrifice. And they had an encounter with the real God, the true God. And when you have an encounter with, with God, you, you are meeting someone who cannot be bullied. He cannot be uh, bribed or cajoled or conned. And the Greek gods, they love to be <laughs> cajoled and conned and, and, and bribed. Uh, but not, not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, he is God. Now, the last thing about this, the man so wants to follow Jesus. And he says, no, go home. I think of the story of the uh, the rich young man who Jesus uh, who who wanted to follow Jesus, and he said, "Well, if you would be perfect, sell what you have, give to the poor, and follow me." This guy was told, "No, go back to your family." So this person was restored to what he had possessed before his possession, and that's a juxtaposition, and the rich young man was told to give up what he had possessed, his property. One size doesn't fit all. The Lord wants to free us from what enslaves us. The rich young man was enslaved by his wealth, whereas the, the, the garrison demoniac was not enslaved by his wealth. Jesus restored him to his responsibilities. 
You know, someone asked me once, can, you know, we all think, well, sell what you have, give to the poor and come follow me. Well, therefore, a Christian should owe nothing. I don't think that's true at all. We don't own anything. Everything we have is given to us by God uh, for his glory. And we're the stewards of what we think we own. We don't own it. It's given to us to be stewarded and used for the good of of God's plan. Um, uh, if If God has given you great wealth, it's so that you can use it for his glory. Uh, if you are the owner of a home and you have a family and people for whom you're responsible, your salary, your possessions are to help your ministry, which is to raise your children well in the church, to get them good education, good health care. But everything we own, everything we think we own really belongs to the Lord and we're to use it as stewards. The question, can a Christian have possessions Oh, yes, a Christian can own things, but it's a terrible thing when the things own the Christian. Did you get that? A Christian can own things, but it's a terrible thing when the things own the Christian. Jesus wants to make us free. And if it's, if our, if our property is owning us, he wants us to be free of it. If our, if our <laughs> running about in the hillsides and the tombs and not living up to our family responsibilities enslaves us, well, then we need to go home and freely serve those people God has given us to love. So one size doesn't fit all here. Uh, but I think that that's a very interesting thing. All right. Well, we're going to take a break and we're going to we're going to read some letters and uh, we will open the phones at 888-914-9149. Ooh, waltz music. Let's all waltz during the break. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth, and virtue. Learn more about The Catholic University for Independent Thinkers at RelevantRadio.com forward slash UDallas. I'm going to lay down my burden well, down, down by the riverside down, down by the riverside Down by the riverside I'm going to lay down my burden well, down, down by the riverside To study to sing this in the 60s, back when things were groovy. All right, that's it. Let's go to letters. That's a different trumpet. <laughs> okay. Uh, th- uh, this is from Anna, Anna Maria, and, uh, uh, and Greg. And the other day I mentioned the Inquisition, said I would talk about it someday. Well, I'll talk about it today. Why not? The Inquisition... Uh, there were lots of different inquisitions. <laughs> the voice might just said, want to play Monty Python? Well, maybe later. But uh, the Inquisition uh, was what we would mean by an inquest. And, you know, we're judging it by our current standards. Well, that that's a bit of a dodge, isn't it? I mean, there are objective standards of right and wrong that persist throughout history. Yeah, there are. However, politics <laughs> is, is quite another thing. We see the church and the state as completely separate entities. That's rather unusual. 
And it's actually an idea that we get from, uh, I believe, we can trace that idea of separation of church and state back to the Old Testament because you had the kings who governed and the priests who who, uh, took care of the temple and kings were from the tribe of Judah and priests were from the tribe of Levi and you couldn't be both. Uh, at least not uh, according to Scripture. The the Maccabees managed to be both, and they had a lot of trouble for it. But politics and religion have always been inseparable, and we Americans like to think that they can be separate. And the jury is still out, because what's going on in the current world is, once again, the the marriage of politics and religion. And the religion is a secular religion that is very anti-Christian. So increasingly people are persecuted for being in the wrong religion. We are not in the church of woke. We are in the church of Christ. And uh, we're being persecuted increasingly for that. But this idea that, that morals and government and religion are inextricably bound together, I think is, is the more common view. Uh, the more common experience of human beings. So the Inquisition was really a government-sponsored agency that that governed the the beliefs of people, that investigated their beliefs and their religious practices, because some beliefs and some religious practices were considered antisocial, such as witchcraft. Uh, um, Well... There were different inquisitions. There was the English Inquisition, the Italian Inquisition, uh, the German Inquisition, and the Spanish Inquisition. When people think of the Inquisition, they think of the Spanish Inquisition because of something called the Leyenda Negra, the black legend that that uh, that Spain was demonized uh, by the English Protestants um, at, uh, in order to, to keep... Um, the Spanish from taking over England. The Spanish claimed uh, a right to England under Philip II because he had been married to the Queen of England, uh, who was his cousin, uh, Mary uh, Tudor. And they had to create an entire legend to express or to guarantee their freedom uh, as Englishmen, they thought. So there were... were, uh, one of the most famous works was uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, which just made the Spanish seem like these demonic, horrible, horrible people. And this was called the Black Legend. Look it up. The Black Legend, La Leyenda Negra. So, of course, the Spanish Inquisition, we all know, was merciless and killed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. It just isn't so. The Spanish Inquisition was actually kind of a life-saving committee. I know that that sounds odd, but in a place like Germany, where the Inquisition was was pretty brutal, and England, where it was very brutal, and then that uh, religious uh, brutality continued after the Reformation, um, the Inquisition in Spain was, uh, was nothing compared to them. Uh, Almost no people were executed for witchcraft uh, in Spain in a period in which in Germany, Protestant and Catholic alike, maybe 40,000, 50,000 people were executed for witchcraft. 
uh, um, the town whence came my mother's family was a was an administrative center for the witch trials in Germany that were going on essentially at the same time the Salem witch trials were going on here. There was this mania in Spain. Uh, the Inquisition said, don't be ridiculous. Uh, there's no such thing. You can't sell your soul to the devil. And what would happen is if someone was accused of witchcraft in in a place like Germany, all you had to do was tick off your neighbor, the mayor and the pastor. And well, you were in trouble in Spain. No one could be executed until a committee from the local university came and investigated. The Inquisition would come to town and there would be, it was almost like the town went on a retreat and charges would be investigated. And usually if there was anything found, penances would be meted out and uh, um, they would move on their way. And it was kind of a three strikes you're out program. Now, why was it so important um, to have this religious conformity to the governments of Europe because they didn't believe that you could have a society in which there was religious diversity. And we think that you can't have a society with religious diversity, but we're changing on that. Uh, religious diversity is no longer allowed because I can't say, I believe this particular practice is immoral. How dare you? You've offended me. I'm going to sue you, or you're going to lose your job, or we're going to hound you until you have no peace. That's what's going on in our country. We have a new inquisition going on, and it is it is the woke inquisition. If you put something on Facebook that that the the uh, the religious authorities of the Church of Woke disagree with, well, your life is going to be miserable. It's 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 it, it's almost as bad as what people think the inquisition was. But you know, there's been a lot of research done on the inquisition and. Uh, there were not hundreds of thousands of people killed by the Inquisition. There were, it was in the, the low thousands. Well, still, that's horrible. Over the process of six or seven centuries, well, we we executed a lot more people than that. In fact, is Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell, killed more people in Ireland in an afternoon uh, than the Spanish Inquisition executed during its entire history of a number of centuries. So I, I just want to say that to say that if you think the Spanish Inquisition was this this horrible thing, no, it was it was not. Uh, compared to the the brutality of the times, it was not. In fact, is uh, there are cases in which a person who was accused of a civil crime would start blaspheming because he would be put in the jails of the Inquisition. If you, for instance, were a pickpocket in Spain, you might get your hand cut off. Uh, if you started blaspheming, automatically you're handed over the Inquisition. Uh, the jails were better, the food was better, and you would be given penances. Uh, I'm not making this stuff up. It's it's fascinating. The the research that they've done recently on the Inquisition, now that all the files are open, um, it was a reasonable process for guaranteeing an essential harmony in society. Uh, very interestingly, I think I mentioned this the other day, about a third of Germany died in the wars of religion. The wars of religion in the 1600s never came to Spain or Italy because the Inquisition didn't let things get started. So um, I'm not being glib when I say that the Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition, was really kind of a life-saving committee. They came to town and they exonerated people and people who were guilty of, of offenses against the state religion were given penances and um, um, it all worked out. 
You know, the idea that, well, the Inquisition killed thousands and thousands of Jews, the Inquisition never killed a single Jew because Jews were not under the authority of the Inquisition, neither were Muslims. If you were a convert from Judaism and still practicing uh, Judaism, uh, then you might have trouble. Uh, those were called the conversos, and the Inquisition uh, would judge conversos and Sometimes we're, we're, we're very, uh, I, I bet the conversos, uh, suffered the most and, uh, um, and the moriscos, the converted Moors. And eventually the converted Moors had to be expelled from Spain because their conversion was, was, uh, uh, really half-hearted and, uh, they were a, a danger to the Spaniards judged them a danger because, uh, the, the, the sultans of, of Constantinople, were constantly threatening to take back uh, Spain uh, as part of their empire. And uh, uh, um, it was thought, and, and reasonably so, uh, that the, that the uh, converted Muslims would rise up uh, as a kind of fifth column. So I guess I'm saying all that just to say, don't assume that what you've heard about the Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition, is true. Look it up. The, the, actually, the... The Wikipedia article is is fairly uh, uh, um, it seems to me fairly fairly balanced. It it documents the the entire um, uh, uh, what what you want to say the entire total of deaths in the Inquisition. And according to that, in the entire history of the Inquisition. There were fewer than now. This is going to sound awful. More fewer than three thousand deaths, but you realize the Inquisition lasted for six hundred years. Uh, you know, the state of Texas, a beautiful state, by the way, uh, has executed a lot more than that in the course of its history, which is not six hundred years. Uh, and and um, we judge the current. Uh, we judge the Spanish Inquisition by by current sensitivities. Should we judge our own country by those current sensitivities, which has executed untold numbers of people? So, you know, uh, it's hard to judge history, and especially when that history is is uh, falsely represented. So uh, there, I, I guess I spent a lot of time talking about that, but I, I think it's a very interesting thing that it's worth study um, uh, that... that um, don't believe everything you hear about the church. That's that's uh, uh, almost a given. All right, we are going to take a break. We'll we'll come back with the word of the day, and then we will. Well, the phones are open. Eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. But the Inquisition's here, and it's here to stay. Hi, this is Father Rich Simon. Have you ever dreamt of seeing the sights in Italy? St. Peter's Basilica, the Sistine Chapel, Drew Mariani in the Colosseum, fighting to the death? More info on our September Eucharistic Revival Pilgrimage at relevantradio.com slash Italy. Seats are limited, not in the Colosseum necessarily, but on, on the pilgrimage. Everybody's gonna have religion and glory Everybody's gonna be a singing a story Everybody's gonna have a wonderful time up there Oh, glory, how to do it, brother There's a reckoning and a coming in the morning Better get you ready, cause I'm giving you the warning Everybody's gonna have a wonderful time up there 
always enjoy hearing what music well, the boys in my head is picked. All right, let's go to the word of the day. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's where we are, aren't we? The word of the day? I think we are. Oh, oh that's a different gong. Oh, that'll wake you up. All right. Um, the In the reading today, where, where did I put the reading today? Okay. Uh, this is, of course, the Gospel of Mark, the fifth chapter. And the devil says, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? Um, and that's an interesting um, thing in itself, son of the most high God. In Hebrew, I believe the most high God was El Elyon. And Melchizedek was a priest of the most high. But that's I, I haven't thought about that, so I'm not going to go there. But he'd been say, Jesus had been saying to him, unclean spirit, come out of the man. Well, I think that's kind of interesting right there. Uh Again, with this idea of uncleanness, I I've, I remember, um, oh, I hope, oh, why not? I'll plunge into it. I remember um, being in the kitchen at the synagogue, um, and Rabbi Lefkowitz's uh, son, Moshe, may he rest in peace. Moshe was um, in charge of stuff, and he was talking about clean and unclean things. And I looked in the refrigerator that Moshe was caring for, and I was in charge of, and it was it was pretty filthy, and I realized that clean and unclean have nothing to do with what we think of as clean and unclean who are not Jews. It's a completely different idea, and I think a lot of Jews I've known uh, um, kind of confuse it. Like, well, you know, pigs are dirty animals. Pigs are not necessarily dirty animals. I mean, chickens are dirty. Chickens are disgusting. If you've been in a chicken house. You know, pigs wallow in mud, that's true, but they'd rather wallow in clean water. They, the only way to cool off is dirty water, well, they'll go in it. But the, the, uh, <clears throat> the idea of ritual cleanliness has nothing to do with hygienic cleanliness. Uh, people say, well, pork was forbidden because pork had disease. Every animal you eat it uncooked it can give you a disease. Salmonella, chickens are full of salmonella, you gotta cook them well. Uh, the, the, well, he's saying, come forth unclean spirit. Now, what does, so if, if, if clean and unclean don't refer to, to, uh, hygienic sanitation, uh, then what is it referring to? My suspicion is, and the way I read it is that an unclean spirit, an impure spirit is one that keeps you from prayer that that cleanliness is a matter of of consecration to god that that what is consecrated to god or can be consecrated to god is clean and what impedes you from prayer is unclean um I, it's hard to wrap your head around it but i think you got to get over the idea that when the bible talks about clean and unclean it isn't talking about tidiness and uh, dusting and good refrigeration it's not talking about that it's talking about this kind of uh, presentability before god and an unclean spirit is a spirit that keeps us from prayer Uh, that's my interpretation of this he was saying to this unclean spirit come out from the man Uh, so that's just a thought on clean and unclean and of course you will i know Take it with a grain of salt. All right, let us go now to uh, the phone. So there's the salt shaker. Let's Hello, go to the phone. Newman. 
<laughs> no, we don't have Newman here. We have, we have Sue. Uh, Sue, what can I do for you? Hi. They asked me to be brief, so I will try to. And how are you doing today, Father? <laughs> they never asked me to be brief. They wouldn't even. No, they, they wouldn't I... even hope to. <laughs> what can I do okay, for you? Okay. Well, so? I'll get right into it. My husband and I. Uh, we're both Catholics, and I, I'll admit up front, I, I'm a lapsed Catholic. But anyway, mm-hmm. we went to parochial schools from first grade. He yeah. went until high school, all through high school. And, mm-hmm. you know, in, back then in the 50s and 60s, uh, yeah. you, uh, the nuns would bring us to, to, to First Friday Mass every Friday. Yes. So I know I made my First Fridays, and my husband made his First Fridays, and I even probably did the first Saturdays. And the uh, and we were taught that the promise is, if you make your first Fridays, that you will not die without the sacrament. And he mm-hmm. passed away about 11, 12 years ago. With It's bothered me ever since without the sacrament. Even mm-hmm. in the hospital, when he had already been, he, he was pronounced dead and all, uh, they said, would you like a priest? And I said, absolutely, because you don't know how long the the soul yeah. hangs around, and they sent a um, non-sectarian, non-sectarian woman to, to come in and. Yeah. Well, they, you know, she says, "Do you want him anointed?" I says, "Well, I don't know. At this point, I suppose the first time I lost anybody, I don't know, but I do know that bothers me that he he died yeah. without a priest." Yes. <sighs> How to approach this? You know, oh, how do I, you don't know that, have you ever heard of, of, of St. Faustina, Sister Faustina Kowalska, the Divine Mercy no. Devotion? She was a, a nun in Poland uh, just before the Second World War broke out, and she had these wonderful visions, St. Faustina. And um, she questioned the Lord about... What about people who don't who don't have anyone to teach them the gospel? And she said, "Now it's a private revelation, and and I, I'm going to have to get into that." But she said that the Lord told her, "Don't worry about it. At the hour of death, I am my own apostle." So what you do is you trust the Lord on this. I mean, did he have a priest? Well, he may have had Christ. I don't know. Um, that. That's what I tell I myself think, to keep myself from going crazy, is that yes, you know, just because he didn't have a priest, it doesn't mean that, that Jesus and Mary wasn't with no, him. No, 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 that's true. But uh, this, is, this is a hard thing, for, I think, especially for very traditional Catholics to believe. That idea of the First Friday devotion, oh, I'm, I'm thinking back, it's got to be St. Mark, Margaret Mary Alacoque, but this was a promise made in a vision. We Catholics believe that there is something called the deposit of faith. We have a scripture and a sacred tradition that go back to Christ. These are what have been revealed to us. Now, there are lots of mystics who have visions and who have have words from the Lord. St. Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians that our prophesying is imperfect and our knowledge is imperfect. In other words, Everything outside of the revelation of scripture and sacred tradition, not just, you know, tradition with a small t, but sacred tradition, uh, everything outside of those is, is well, is partly right, partly wrong. Some of it's 99% right, some of it's 99% wrong. And the idea that if you make the first Friday devotion, 
that you are guaranteed heaven, essentially, that's not part of Catholic doctrine. It's a beautiful practice that I think really does help us to, to die in a state of grace. And who's to know if your husband, dying and even in a coma, remembered that he had made those nine First Fridays and asked God for mercy? Um, you know, but the idea that, that the dear nuns told us that, and they, they certainly told us as if it had been written in the Bible, but it wasn't. Uh, it was a great hope and is a great hope and a good practice to prepare for the, our eventual death, which every one of us will face. As for your husband, I would, I would, what I would really do for you, have you do for yourself rather, is look at the Divine Mercy Devotion. I think it might be of great help to you. And Sister Faustina Kowalska, uh, it's a very powerful thing. And in fact, is the next show, Drew Mariani, uh, he, he prays what is called the Divine Mercy Chaplet. I think that might be a great help to you for your peace of mind. Um, you know, that's at three o'clock after this show. Um, you know, the, the, the catechism says we are bound by the sacraments. However, God is not. God can work his way around them, and we have great hope in the mercy of God. So what is your husband's first name, may I ask? Richard. 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 I will I will offer a mass for the repose of his soul, and, and I will be uh, praying I, for you. Yeah, so, thank you, you know, very much. And uh, I would think about, you know, seriously in my own in your own life looking at what god might want of you so i will be well, I'll praying tell you, for this, you god bless you Go this on. channel has has really done a lot for me um because I, I i can feel myself getting back into the you know into the yeah the feelings of the church and you've answered a lot of misconceptions to, you know you and your other uh speakers have answered I mean, I was told that there was no more purgatory after the Second Vatican Council, <laughs> that, that they did away with purgatory. Oh, I, so now, I love purgatory. Oh, no, there's still a purgatory, and I'm counting on it because, you know, purgatory well, to me is one of the most beautiful ideas. You, you continue to grow after you die, if you die in the Lord. You continue so you, I, you know, more here, All these years now, I haven't been saying any prayers for his soul in purgatory. All these well, years, and I felt so guilty when I found out they, there is a purgatory, and I have neglected my husband's, as far as prayers to help him through purgatory. It's it, it, That was devastating to me that I felt like well, a horrible person. Well, better late than never. Better late than never. And I, as I said, I will say Mass uh, for the repose of the soul of Richard. But, yeah, well, hang in there. And, and I would I would stay tuned for Drew and the Divine Mercy Chaplet. It might be of some help to you. God bless you. And I will certainly be praying for you. All right. And I'm honored that you listen. All right. God bless you. All right. Oh, my. This is, it is, it is. You know, we so want to restrict God to what we what we learned when we were eight. And God is more interesting than all that. Let's go to Dave from Florida. Are you with us, Dave, from Florida, where it's warm? Yes, I am indeed. It is warm. We thank God for that every day. And I have a slackers about the... slackers. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> go on. Cold weather we, builds character. We pray, we pray for the people in the northern climates to come visit oh, us. Please. Uh, oh, please. <laughs> when they it's going to be 11 below tomorrow night, they're saying. But go on. <laughs> Why should I tell you my problems? What can I do for you, Dave? Uh, well, Father, I have a question about the rubrics of the Mass. My wife and I yes. moved recently, and so we are 
going to a mass where the pastor says uh, he says mass and he does a few things that I've never seen before. And I just they, they strike me a certain way, but I'd like to ask if they're proper or not. For, for instance, at the elevation, uh, he elevates both the host and the chalice with a single hand. Now, not at the same time, but when he elevates the, the host, he's using one hand to elevate the host. And then when he elevates the chalice, he does the same thing. And I've, I've, it just it seems like a very hmm. small thing, but it just struck me as I've never seen that before. And I don't know if that yeah, matters. I've, I've seen that. It looks like when he raised the chalice, one is like <laughs> a toast. Like Let's a toast. toast the yeah. Yeah, yeah, it looks ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, I don't have a, a Roman Missal in front of me right now, but I'll have to look that up to see. It says he elevates those. The, the custom is with both hands. I don't know that the rubrics demand that. Uh, let's see here. Uh, where's a pl- oh, I don't I gosh I'm nowhere near a Roman missile, but I will look okay. that up and uh, comment on it. But it is unusual, so I don't know that it is a violation of the rubrics. For people who are listening, rubrics mean the red letters. In the missile, there are black letters. That's what you say. There are rubrics in red letters. That's what you do. Uh, um, so. Um, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll try and, and look that up. But it, yes, it is. It is unusual, and it it seems a little. It always looks a little irreverent to me. But I I can't say that's yes. a violation of the rubrics. And what else does he do that's crazy making? Well, there's there's there are some times where he changes the word. Now th- I'm going to give an example here. I'm not sure he does this one, but I I know there's something else in the mass where he doesn't say like. Instead of saying the the Lord be with you, he'll say maybe uh, the Lord is with you, and it's just these yeah. small little kind of like these personal signatures on the mass that just strike me as this is a little different here. I don't I don't know, you know I I don't know what to make of it myself. Yeah, it it's just you know we we. Uh... We priests, we can always improve on something, we think. And how old is the guy, may I ask? I would say he's in the late 50s, maybe 60, something like that. He's not. He's he's a little younger than I am. Yeah. Uh Well, you know, so many of us have this idea that, well, we're the the ones who are... uh, um, you know, I can I can improve this or or and, and it just it, to me, it's kind of an arrogance. You know, you're not supposed to change any of the words of the liturgy. So you're supposed to say what's in the black. So that would be clearly a uh, uh, that would be clearly a violation of of the rubric. So or of, of, of the sense of it. So, uh, you know, again, you might want to ask him. Uh, why, why, why do you uh, do it that way, Father? And just ask him. Maybe you'll get him thinking. Oh, and then, then speaking of thinking, I hear music in my head, which means Drew is coming up. I'm going to have to look up that stuff. That was, those are interesting questions. But till I do, stay tuned to Drew. Ooh, that rhymed. <laughs> <laughs> 